If you're looking at the Bibles provided, like I am, uh, they're red, should be in the seat in front of you. Uh, you'll find this on page one, around 1015, I believe. Actually, 1016. You can flip the page. All right. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. I invite you to keep uh, God's word open the entire time. Help you follow along. After I'm done reading, if you uh, agree with me that this is God's gift to us, I'll say this is God's word. Join me to say thanks be to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, toward the end of Peter's second letter, he tells us about the letters of Paul, his fellow co-worker in the gospel, his fellow apostle. And he says, you can read the letters of Paul and you can tell that uh, Paul has a lot of wisdom that God has given him. But then he also says you can read the letters of Paul and a lot of things are hard to understand. Now, I have my biblical imagination glasses on. I imagine if Paul heard what Peter said about his letters and maybe he read first. He also read first Peter three eighteen to 22, the passage we're in today. And I might imagine Paul quoting what some what something someone said to Jesus back to Peter. You might say, Peter, you think my stuff is hard? Well, Peter, physician, heal thyself. When coming to, a pa- to preach this passage, good old Marty Luther said this, a wonderful text this is, a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. Well, Martin Luther really knows how to instill confidence in a preacher. Well, if you'll permit me, let's just do some higher level thinking before we dive into 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. Uh, you see, when you come to a more difficult part of the Bible, it's helpful to remember what we believe about the Bible as a whole. Now, if we're taking God at his word, we believe in the perspicuity of the Bible. That is an old word none of us use anymore. In other words, we believe in the doctrine called the clarity of the Bible. That's how God presents his scriptures. So, for example, Psalm 19, verse 7 says this. The law of the Lord, that is another way to say the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what this is saying is that even the simple can understand the Bible and get wisdom from it. Or another example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells his people to teach his words diligently to their children. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes of his protege Timothy that he has been acquainted with the scriptures from his childhood. Passages like these imply that the Bible can be understood well enough to be taught to children. It's been said that the Bible is a river in which children can wade and in which elephants can swim. 
Now, we are not saying that the Bible is always easy to understand. No, we're not saying that. Neither are we saying that it doesn't take time to understand the Bible or it doesn't take effort or prayer or faith or the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not saying any of those things. But neither are we saying that the Bible is impossible to understand. When we talk about the clarity of the Bible, that's what we're saying, that it's possible to understand it, especially what's most central to it. It might be difficult at times, but that's because God takes you and I seriously. He wants us to think. So as we come to a more difficult portion of the Bible, I want you to remember that good news doctrine of the clarity of the Bible. That it's possible for you to understand it. Maybe not to master it, but at least to grow in it. Christian, brother and sister, you need to remember the clarity of the Bible every time you sit down and open it. That you can understand it. I just think so many of us are defeated before we even begin. We just say it's too hard. So many of us are, are just give up at the first sign of difficulty. Now, also, when you approach a more challenging passage like 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, I think it's easy to get bogged down. So you look back at these verses, you read a statement like he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or you read a statement like he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And you read those, your first and natural question is, well, what does that mean? That's that's a reasonable question to ask. It's an important question to ask, but it's easy just to get stuck right there. You'll actually help yourself answer that question if you actually ask a different question. Instead of just asking, what does that mean? You should also be asking, why is this here? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter has a purpose for this section. So when you remember the situation of the people that he's writing to, remember this is a letter. When you remember what Peter has just written previous to this section we're in today, you can better see Peter's purpose in this section. And I think we can summarize that purpose like this. That you don't need to be afraid of your persecutors or your opponents. And you can endure. Because your Savior has conquered death and darkness. And he reigns. That summary statement's found on the back of your bulletin if you want to take a look at it again. This is the pastoral purpose behind this seemingly puzzling passage. And remembering that will help you when you get to the hard parts of this section. So throughout our time, we're going to just volley back and forth between what Peter is saying and why Peter is saying it. And I think, on the whole, Peter is trying to get across at least three different points to his readers. He's trying to get across to them that Jesus' suffering wasn't wasted, and therefore neither will their suffering be wasted. That Jesus' death wasn't the last word about him, and neither will their death be the last word about them. And that Jesus' reign hasn't ceased. And so that means they won't be forgotten by him and they'll be just fine. All of these truths support the case that Peter has been making that he started in the previous paragraph. That they don't need to fear their persecutors and that faithfulness to God, even when it's hard, is better than sin. So first, I think Peter's trying to get across to them and to us that Jesus' suffering wasn't wasted. We're looking here at the first part of verse 18. So let's begin with what Peter is saying. First part of verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, what is Peter saying? Well, in a concise statement, 
Peter describes what's, what amounts to the heart of the gospel message. The heart of who Jesus is and what he has done. Many have described this heart of the message with the label penal substitutionary atonement. Oh, I know what you might be thinking, Steve. We've already got like two doctrine labels this morning. Um, friend, my, my aim is not to make you an egghead Christian. My aim is to make you clear on the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, if you're not clear on the gospel, you can't enjoy the gospel. If you don't know the gospel, you can't defend it. If you don't know the gospel, you can't make it known. So just hang in, with, hang in there with me. Penal substitutionary atonement. The first part of that penal is captured in the phrase from verse 18, Christ suffered. So in that word penal, you can hear the word penalty, right? On the cross, Jesus did more than just suffer a gruesome martyr's death. Jesus paid a penalty. This is why the apostle John describes Jesus as the propitiation for sin. That is a sacrifice that satisfies God's just and right anger against sin. What we read earlier from Colossians 2 describes the record of debt that came from sin being paid at the cross. Jesus himself, Mark chapter 10, describes how he understood his mission here on earth, that he came to give his life as a ransom, literally a payment for many. Jesus paid a penalty. This is what he's saying when he says Christ suffered. And, you know, just as an aside, Jesus paying for our sin is honestly one of my hesitations with uh, the, the life and death of Jesus uh, being captured in movies or on film. Now, I know people can have different opinions about this. I'm not saying that God can't use movies about Jesus. But for instance, like my final impression from a movie like The Passion of the Christ is that the worst part of Jesus's death was the physical anguish or torture. Now, as bad as that was, that was not the worst part of his death. What is it that caused Jesus to sweat drops of blood before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane? It wasn't the physical anguish and the torture. It was paying the penalty for the wrath of God against sin. And I just don't think that's possibly to be captured on film. The old hymn puts it like this. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Penal, substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary is captured in the phrase from verse 18, the righteous for the unrighteous. Substitution is how God can both be just and justifier. How God can maintain his justice and still show mercy. Because Jesus didn't pay the penalty for his own sin, he paid the penalty for the, for the sin of all those who would trust him. This is why he needed to die just one time, as the verse says, because he is the perfect sacrifice. We sing this in the old hymn. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. Atonement is captured in that phrase from verse 18, that he might bring us to God. It's interesting that Peter says this. Peter could have said a number of different things here, couldn't he have? Peter could have said that he might forgive us of our sins. True as that may be. Peter could have said that he might give us a new start. That's true also. Peter could have said that he might get us into heaven. Amen. But all of those purposes serve the ultimate purpose. 
that he might bring us to God. My friend, I submit to you that this is the best and the most glorious result of Christ's work in your place on the cross, that you get God. To be atoned for is to be at one with God again. Christian, I I just think it's so easy to undervalue this best and most glorious result of the gospel. John Piper puts it to us like this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, with all the food you've ever liked, with all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, with all the natural beauties you ever saw, with all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, with no human conflict, with no natural disaster. If you could have that heaven, could you be satisfied if God was not there? The point of the gospel, he says, is not just to get people to heaven. It's to get people to God. My friend, if you're not a Christian, I, I want you to consider 1 Peter three eighteen, just the first part of it. And I want to pull no punches with you. Describe the plain teaching of the Bible that if you don't turn from yourself to trust in Jesus Christ to save you, then you are separated from God, not just temporarily, but permanently. That if you don't do that, you will face paying the penalty for your own sin. You will have to do that forever in a place that the Bible calls hell. I just don't know how you can look at the cross of Jesus Christ and conclude any differently. I don't know how you can look at what Jesus' own understanding about what he came to do and conclude differently. The glorious good news is that the one you and I sinned against actually pays the penalty for what you and I owe. That he sent his only son to live the righteous life that you and I didn't live. That he sent his only son to die the death that you and I deserve in our place. And that he rose again three days later. My friend, what this verse is telling you is that you don't have to be separated from God. You could be near him forever by trusting Jesus Christ to stand in your place. Would you do that today? Would you come talk to me if you have questions about this? Now, if that is what Peter is saying just in that first verse, uh, first part of verse 18, that Jesus died in our place to bring us back to God, then why is he saying that? Well, I think we could spot the why of that in the first and the third word of verse 18. If you see those, the first word is for, the third word is also. With these words, Peter's connecting what he's saying here to what he has said previously. He's saying, this is part of my case to you that you don't need to fear those who persecute you. It's part of my case to you that it's worth following faithfully after God, even when it brings suffering. Why is it worth it? Well, because Christ also suffered for doing good. Peter's telling them and all the Christ's followers after them, if you are mocked and ridiculed for Jesus' sake, he also was mocked and ridiculed. If you lose friends and are betrayed for Jesus' sake, Jesus also lost friends and was betrayed. If you're falsely accused for Jesus' sake, Jesus also was falsely accused. If you are arrested for Jesus' sake, so also was Jesus arrested. If you are stripped of everything you have for Jesus' sake, so also Jesus was stripped of everything he had. If you are beaten for Jesus' sake, so also Jesus was beaten. 
if you are killed for Jesus' sake, so also Jesus was killed. If you suffer while doing what's right, Jesus did the same. That's what Peter's saying. And I think he's saying even more. Because Jesus didn't suffer for something that he did. Jesus suffered for what you did. So not only does Jesus stand with us in solidarity, Jesus paid your penalty. He brought you back to God. Jesus endured the most unjust suffering there ever was to bring about the greatest good there ever was. So surely if his suffering wasn't wasted, neither will the suffering of those who trust in him be wasted. If his suffering had purpose, so will your suffering, Christian, have purpose. And I wonder if we get a hint of that purpose behind our suffering for Christians, even in verse 18. Here in verse 18, we're reminded that through his work on our behalf, Jesus has brought us back to God the Father. Isn't it the case, friend, that in your trials, in the hardest time of your life, especially in the times that you suffer for your faith in Christ, that you experience a new closeness to God like you haven't before. That you get a new taste of his goodness or his faithfulness, a new taste of his power, of his care. It's been said that you don't quite know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And it makes me think of Job's story. That God allowed everything to be taken from Job. His riches, his family, his reputation, his health. And what was the purpose behind it all? In her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, Elizabeth Elliot observes that God didn't meet Job with an explanation. God didn't meet Job with an explanation. He met, he met Job with himself. So that by the end of the book, Job's faith isn't based on how well his life is going. By the end of the book, Job's faith is based on God's character. My friend, this is so important for you and I to understand because I just think of the values of our culture. I think of the natural default setting of my own heart. And that's just, I want good circumstances. The natural default setting of my heart is I just want to be comfortable. I don't want any stress. I don't want any problems. I don't want any uncertainty. I just want to be comfortable. What I'm not saying to you is that you should want stress or want uncertainty or want pain. But neither should you make it your life's pursuit to just avoid these at all costs. Because if you're doing that, what you're actually saying is that the true refuge you seek is the quality of your circumstances and not the goodness of your God. What is the refuge you seek? And sometimes here's the thing that the way God has to teach us that he is the refuge we need is by taking away the other refuges we have sought. John Newton describes this from God's perspective in his hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow. These inward trials I employ, I give to you from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in me. Christian, your suffering like your saviors is never wasted. It will only, in the end, bring you nearer to God. 
So remember, Peter's making a case to the followers of Christ that they don't need to be afraid of their opponents, that even when they suffer for doing good, God's will is still good. He's making that case by pointing us back to our Savior. First, since Jesus' suffering wasn't wasted, neither will ours be. And second, since Jesus' death wasn't the last word about him, neither will our death be the last word about us. Here we're looking at the second half of verse 18 through verse 21. This is a tightly packed presentation. It has lots of moving parts. And honestly, this is where the passage gets difficult. So but if, what we're saying is for as intricate, for as seemingly mysterious as this passage appears, I do think there's a pastoral purpose behind it. So again, I think we'll be clearer to see what Peter's saying if we remember why he's saying it. So we're going to dive in. I just want to spend a few minutes waiting in some deep waters here. So if you are not open to 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, even if you're normally the person like, I don't, it's not my thing to look at the Bible during the sermon. I, talk to me afterwards. I would love to persuade you of starting to do that. Um, just indulge me for a few minutes and look at this. It will be easier for you to understand it. Okay. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22, picking up at the second half of verse 18, we're trying to answer, what is Peter saying? Starts with this, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, remember previously, Peter has said that Christ suffered once for sins. Here is the nature of that suffering. How did Jesus suffer? Well, he was put to death. Now, remember that a good rule of thumb for interpreting the Bible is to take what is more clear and let that help you read what is less clear. What's more clear can help you with what's less clear. Now, in the statement like being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, what's less clear is what Peter means by in the flesh and in the spirit. Does Peter mean that like Jesus died physically, but you know, his spirit lives on? To me, that seems like kind of a cheap moral victory. However, what's more clear in that statement, again, that statement being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What's more clear is the contrast between put to death and made alive. Jesus was dead and now he's alive. If you keep going, what's more clear as he goes on in verse 19 is that Jesus goes on to proclaim his victory. If you keep going, what's clear in verse 22 is that Jesus now has all authority and is at the right hand of God. So it's, it would be difficult to see how Jesus could proclaim a victory and how Jesus could have all authority if he didn't really rise from the dead. So I think that guides us to what Peter means when he says in the flesh and in the spirit. Here, Peter is describing the way Jesus died and the way Jesus came alive. Jesus died physically with reference to his flesh. He was made alive by the spirit, not lowercase s, but capital S spirit. I think the context leads us to translate spirit, not as his own spirit, not as the spiritual realm, but capital S Holy Spirit. So this verse runs parallel to a verse like 1 Timothy 3.16, which says Jesus was vindicated by the spirit. It's another way of saying that the spirit rose Jesus from the dead. That brings us to verse 19, okay? Hang in there with me, just a few minutes of deep waters, okay? In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So if it's the spirit who made Jesus alive, it's also the spirit who facilitates what's going on here. 
in which can also be translated in whom. So it says, it says then in which he went. So where did Jesus go? And we established that verse 18 talks about the spirit raising Jesus from the dead. So what's happening here in verse 19 is happening after the resurrection. It's not describing what's happening between his death and resurrection. It's, it's describing what happens after his resurrection. After Jesus rose from the dead, where did he go? Well, he didn't descend to hell. He ascended to heaven. If you want to prove that, just look at verse 22. Again, let, let what is more clear interpret what's less clear. Verse 22 describes what happens after the resurrection. It says Jesus has gone into heaven. And interestingly enough, the same verb for gone in verse 22 is the same verb for went in verse 19. So Jesus went into heaven and proclaimed something. Presumably, he proclaimed his victory over death at having just risen from the dead. And who did he proclaim this to? Well, it says he proclaimed this to the spirits in prison. And we join everybody else, say, Peter, come on. Um, can things get a little easier here? Well, I think we can get help by looking at how the Bible interprets, uh, uses the word spirits and prison to figure out what Peter is saying. Whenever the Bible uses the plural form of spirits, it always refers to supernatural angelic beings, not the immaterial part of human beings. The case for that strengthened when we realize the word prison is never used to describe the place for the punishment of human beings. But in Revelation 20, verse 7, it is used to describe the place of the punishment for Satan, the supreme fallen angelic being. So... No, we're sprinting just to catch our breath. Verse 19 is saying that the spirit raised Jesus from the dead, also ascended Jesus to heaven, where he proclaimed his victory over death to fallen angels. But to keep going, verse 20, Peter explains why these angelic beings were imprisoned in the first place. He says they were disobedient during the days of Noah. These were days of increasing sin throughout the earth. These were also days that Peter says of God's patience, when God deferred his judgment, giving opportunity to repent. Now, verse 20 is a reference back to a passage we read earlier, Genesis chapter 6. Commentator Tom Schreiner points out that Genesis 6 is the last event before the flood. It is like the culmination of sin on the earth. It is like the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. It is when fallen angelic beings had relations with women on earth. I know, a wild time. And yet, even for as evil as that time was, for as much as the entire world opposed God, even when the world was at its worst, God's grace was still active. God still saved eight people through the water. So that the same water that destroyed rebels against God also saved the people of God. And Peter keeps going. Verse 21, he says, all of this is like baptism. Really, Peter, how is that? <laughs> Again, I'm helped by my New Testament professor, Tom Schreiner. You see, in baptism, you are plunged under the water. And this represents death. It's Romans 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. 
Even Jesus likens his own death to a baptism. He is submerged in it. So both flood and baptism are agents of death. But those who trust in Christ survive the waters because they are baptized with him. And just as we have died with Christ, so also we will be raised with Christ. We live with him. That's what we read earlier from Colossians 2 verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So Dr. Schreiner summarizes, just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. Now, Peter clarifies that this doesn't happen to us when we are physically baptized. Rather, this is what baptism symbolizes. It's been said that baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a sign that by faith in Christ, we are united to him. So that that his death is our death and his resurrection is our resurrection. It's because of him that we have victory over the grave. It's because of him that Peter says we now have a good conscience. In other words, that we are washed and forgiven of our sin. Almost done with the deep waters. Just going to catch our breath one more time. Let me summarize the second half of verse 18 through the end of verse 21. Basically, what Peter is saying is that Jesus was killed, but the spirit brought him to life and then ascended him to heaven. And from there, Jesus proclaimed his victory over death to fallen angels. These angels were judged by God during one of the worst times on earth, the days of Noah. And yet, even as God brought judgment through water, he also saved people through water. And the same is true for those who trust in Christ. They have survived the waters of judgment Since they are united to Christ. Jesus' death is their death. Jesus' life is their life. Justice is satisfied. Victory is won. Forgiveness and new life are here. That is what Peter is saying. Why would Peter say this? You see, Peter's writing to Christians who aren't that different from you and from me. He's writing to Christians who look at the world around them and see it falling apart. He writes to Christians who look at the world around them and see the world succumbing to new depths of sin. He writes to Christians who look at the world around them and see people who just live however they want to live. And they are starting to get noticed and they are not getting noticed for, in a good way. And you could see how this could make Christians like them and like us tepid and insecure and even fearful So Peter's writing this to give them and to give us a joyful, resilient, spiritual backbone. He's saying that even though Jesus suffered and even died, that wasn't the last word. The spirit raised him from the dead. And now you might feel the full weight of the world's opposition upon your shoulders. You might even be killed. And yet, because of him, you are safe. Like Christ Death won't be the last word about you. Even the strongest opposition can't ultimately touch you. Because the price is paid, the victory is won. What do we sing? We sing no guilt in life, no fear in death, for this is the power of Christ in me. 
So if death wasn't the last word about Jesus, neither will it be the last word about for those who trust in him. Now, before we move on to the last point, I just want to reflect on this in a little bit more concrete of a way. Because I think that you and I have a funny relationship with death. Not funny, haha, but funny, like, curious. I think we are more afraid of death than we realize. In his book, his excellent book, Remember Death, author Matthew McCullough writes this. Imagine for a moment that you live in Andover, Massachusetts during the 1600s. There, the average couple, the average married couple in those years gave birth to roughly nine children. But three of those nine children, on average, would die before the age of 21. That is one of three on average. And for some families, it was even worse. The New England minister, Cotton Mather, for example, buried 13 of his children. Now, the rise of modern medicine has mainly had wonderful implications for the reality of death in our lives. McCullough writes, we're living longer, we're living better. We have drugs to attack headaches and cancer. We have surgeries to address heart attacks and herniated discs. But all of this, he says, comes with a big, often unnoticed side effect. That the reality of death has been pushed to the margins of our experience. So we often sequester death to hospitals and hospice centers. As good of work as they do. We often treat death as something that's exotic. Something that happens to other people. Not something that will happen to me. We've lost sight of the reality that the mortality rate of the human race is 100%. McCullough writes, modern medicine is to death what a comb-over is to a balding scalp. We may shield the reality for a time, but at some point, the comb-over is no more than a monument to the power of baldness. The harder we try, the more obvious our weakness and the more obvious death's power. So what's the answer? Is the answer just to be unaffected, numb by death, make the most of the life you have? That's not how Jesus lived. Clearly, Jesus was not affected, uh, was affected by death. He wept at the death of his friend. Neither should our response be to fear death at all costs or to avoid it at all costs. Because what this is saying is that if death truly isn't the last word because of Christ, then what the late Tim Keller said is true. That all death can now do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. So remember, key to understanding what Peter is saying is why Peter is saying it. He wants these Christians not to be afraid, but to persevere in faithfulness to God, even though suffering has come their way. That's why he's pointed us back to Jesus. That if Jesus' suffering wasn't wasted, neither will ours be. That if Jesus' death wasn't the last word about him, neither will our death be the last word about us. Finally, last point briefly. If Jesus' reign has not ceased, then we will be just fine. What's Peter saying? Look at verse 22. Continues the flow of thought from the rest of the paragraph. It describes Jesus, the one who has saved them. Not only has he risen from the dead, but he also has gone into heaven. And there's an interesting switch, isn't there, between the past tense and the present tense. He has gone into heaven and is now at the right hand of God. This is where Jesus is right now and where he is continually. The right hand, the place of honor. 
with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All these terms refer to angels, and keep in mind the context. Jesus proclaims his victory over death to fallen angels. There there is more to it than that. Jesus hasn't just risen from the dead, he has risen from the dead in order to reign and rule. So can you see why Peter might tell us something like this? As we live in a world of increasing opposition, as we live in a world of increasing darkness, a world where we are excluded or derided or slandered, how might we be tempted to think? I don't know about you, I might be tempted to think that Jesus has forgotten about me. If you've ever thought that, you know a thought like that is actually in the Bible. It's part of a natural experience. Psalm 42, verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? You find yourself in a situation where opposing forces are all around, and it gets even worse when you feel like you're all alone. But we remember this passage, that in a world of evil and opposition, remember that God remembered and saved even just eight people. Surely he will remember you. That the evil and opposition around you can't take you from Christ. It is subject to him. So not one moment of your experience comes apart from his permission and his plan. So when it comes to the opposition from the world, when it comes to the powers of darkness, how you and I process this, I think you and I can fall in either one or two ditches. We look at the world around us, we look at the evil in the world around us, and we can either just be passive about it. We can say, oh, it's just not that bad. Maybe it's overblown. Or I'm just too busy to even think about it. We can fall into that side of the ditch. When we look at the world around us, we can also fall on the other side and be paranoid. It's so bad, it's everywhere. Paranoid at least of paralysis or anger or fear. Because there's a way to stay in the middle and not fall on either side of passivity or paranoia. And I I found myself using this analogy this week. I think it's helpful. The way to stay on the center is to know what time you live in. You and I live in a time between D-Day and V-Day. Any World War II history buffs out there? The invasion of Normandy on D-Day effectively marked the end of World War II. I mean, the opposition was crippled. Victory was secured. But opposing forces still fought back. The war was won. But the battles continued. So for us, Jesus died, rose again, and he reigns. The war is won. But the world rages on. The powers of darkness fight on. The battles continue. So when you know you live in that time, you can live with both vigilance in the fight and with confidence and hope that the war has been won and the day is coming. We're going to sing about this in just a few minutes. Charles Wesley captures this perspective in his uh, hymn, Rejoice, the Lord is King. Jesus, the Savior, reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. The war is won, but the battles continue. So rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord, the judge, shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Just to put a bow on it, summarize the whole thing. Friends, you don't have to be afraid. You can persevere because your Savior's suffering wasn't wasted, so neither will yours be. Your Savior's death wasn't the last word about him, neither will your death be the last word about you. And your Savior still reigns. 
you will be just fine. You are his forever. Let's pray. God of truth and love, we thank you for purging, for paying the penalty for our sins that we deserve and taking it upon yourself. Oh, we thank you for the glorious result of the gospel that we are brought near at one with God. Would you use this truth to calm our fears? Would you use this truth that death has conquered, that darkness is defeated, and victory is coming to give us hope and confidence in a world that is still evil and opposing. That even as we live in this world, that we would have a heart for this world to be at one with you. Oh, help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.